0: The rampant fear that characterizes so many in our world, and that is they're filled with fear, but it's fearing the wrong things. There is a God who is going to judge the world and judge sin in the future, and that is what people should fear, and people don't necessarily fear that. Scripture is clear, though, that God's Future judgmental anger and wrath is a terrifying reality. So many verses, Psalm 96, 13, it says, He will judge the world in righteousness. Psalm 110, verse 6, He will judge among the nations. And he it says, He will fill them with corpses. That's Psalm 110. New Testament, Acts 17, in that great sermon Paul preached, Uh, In Athens, at the bottom of Mars Hill, had the joy of standing on top of that hill one time, says he has, God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. It's fixed. It's not wavering. It's not on a sliding scale. He knows when the end is. But people don't think about all that. They don't fear that the way they should. Scripture is not only clear that judgment's coming, but it's clear that people should fear that. Remember what Christ said about coming judgment? Matthew 10, 28, don't fear those who can kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. Instead, rather fear him who's able to destroy both soul and body in hell. The unknown author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Well, we're continuing our study of the book of Revelation, and of course it is the record of God's future terrifying judgment. As it was revealed to the Apostle John in a vision, this is judgment that's going to be poured out on rebellious people mankind in the future seven-year tribulation period. This is the seven-year period leading up to the seven years right before the second coming of Christ when he does return to earth, stands on the earth, touches it, Mount Zion, you heard that in chapter 14, Kevin taught that, when he returns to earth in power and glory, and the judgments that will be poured out during the seven-year period, are going to become increasingly more severe, with the most severe being the final series of judgments called the bowl judgments, B-O-W-L judgments, that will occur very close to the Lord's return at the end of that tribulation period in that section that's called the great tribulation. That time of future judgment is sometimes called the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is an expression that can be used for for everything about the tribulation, including the millennial kingdom that follows the tribulation, but also just for the, the wrath of the great tribulation. But that was prophesied that it would come. You find it in Isaiah chapter 13, verse 6. The day of the Lord will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will fall limp and every man's heart will melt. They will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. Verse 9 of Isaiah 13, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel, with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation. He will exterminate its sinners from it. There's nothing that's fulfilled that yet. People try to make what happened in Jerusalem in 70 A.D., which is a very isolated, local thing that happened, as severe as it was to the Jews, try to make that fulfill some of this, and it just doesn't. There's no way it can other prophets talked about it. Ezekiel described it in Ezekiel 30 as a time of doom for the nations, plural, not just Jerusalem. Prophet Joel explained, explained, exclaimed, in Joel 115, it will come as destruction from the Almighty. Zephaniah, I'm going to read, it's a little more extended, three verses here. 15, 17, and 18 in Zephaniah chapter 1, he gives a very frightening description of this that's coming in the day of the Lord. A day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom. I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord, and their blood will be poured out like dust, and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath, and all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy, for he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. How you can take that and try to make it fit something that's happened already in history is beyond me. So there's where we are tonight, again, in the book of Revelation, in chapter 15. This chapter, along with the next one, chapter 16, is presenting the specific events of that last section of judgment before the Lord comes, the seven bowl judgments. And if you remember, those bowl judgments are part of a category of judgments called a, a, the seventh trumpet so the seventh trumpet blows, and that begins the seven bowl trumpets, uh, judgments. Say it this way: the wrath of the seventh trumpet, which is the last trumpet of judgment, is expressed in these seven bowl judgments. Now, chapter fifteen is the shortest chapter in Revelation; only eight verses. It, it forms an introduction to the rapid fire, bold judgments that are going to come that will be given to you more in detail, somewhat detail, in the next chapter, chapter 16. And as we're going to see, this chapter 15 that introduces all that is, is a, a future scene in heaven, a vision that John was allowed to see again in heaven. That's happened before in Revelation, that there's a heavenly scene in preparation for another stage of judgments in the book of Revelation. It happened before all the seal judgments in chapters 4 and 5. It happened with the trumpet judgments at the beginning of that in chapter 8. So here it is again happening here. So chapter 15, you could say, is a heavenly interlude to introduce the pouring out of the seven bowl judgments of wrath that you'll look at in chapter 16. Now, there's three sections in this chapter. That's how we'll outline it. Here's section one. We'll call it the sign of judgment. The sign of judgment. Verse 1, Revelation 15. Then I saw another sign in heaven. That word another, this is profound, what I'm about to tell you. The word another means there's been some already, right? Isn't that profound? There have already been other signs, This is another one. In fact, there's been two of them. We saw them back in chapter 12, and I taught that chapter as well. Chapter 12, 1, had the sign of the woman, represents Israel, clothed in the sun. That was a sign. Revelation 12, 1. Verse 3 of Revelation 12, that was the second one. And that was the sign of the dragon, the great fiery red dragon. So here's the third one, also in heaven. But as noted, it's looking beyond heaven to the end time final bold judgments on earth. So he sees another, <clears throat> another sign in heaven. He says, verse 1, great and marvelous. That word great was used back in chapter 12, verse 1, of the sign of the woman, magos. Now there's a second term, marvelous. It's a word in Scripture that usually speaks of, in Scripture, it speaks of God's works. His works are marvelous or or wonderful, let's translate that way sometimes. These two terms occur together in the New Testament here and in verse 3 in this section, the only places that they term together. And they express then together the enormous importance of this sign. It's important because it's the final outpouring of God's wrath on wicked, unrepentant sinners on the earth. Now, the sign itself consists of something here. He says, seven angels who had seven plagues. It's the first reference in Revelation to a group of angels called the seven angels. They appear seven more times now as a group in the remainder of the book, in chapter 15, 16, 17, 21. This is the first time this group of seven angels appear. Now, in Scripture you find angels serving the Lord in a variety of ways. Angels do the Lord's bidding. They carry out his purposes. There's even a verse in Psalm that says that. The Psalm, Psalm 103 verse 20 says, Bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength, who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. That's what angels do. They perform the Lord's word. They do what he says. Those same beings who have been doing God's bidding throughout history, the same beings who even care for and minister to God's people, at the end, they're going to bring God's wrath to the sinful world. That's what God's going to use them for. Listen to that being predicted by Christ in Matthew 13, Matthew 13: 13, 41 and 42. It says it, the son of man will send forth his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So back to our text, these seven angels, that's what they're going to do. and What they're going to do is called seven plagues that they have. And when we hear the word plague, we think of some sort of, of illness maybe or a disease sometimes. Uh, it doesn't mean that here. It's a word that literally means a wound or a blow that's been struck. You, you heard it, actually saw it, uh, back in chapter 13 when Danny taught that chapter, verse 3 and verse 12, where it is, he talked about the, the the two counterfeits, the counterfeit Christ and the counterfeit Holy Spirit, the Antichrist who comes, the counterfeit Christ, and it says that he... He had a fatal wound. It was a counterfeit wound. It's the same word there. He had a counterfeit plague. So in Revelation, the seven plagues are eschatological. They're not plagues in the form of diseases or epidemics, but they're powerful, deadly blows that'll strike the world with a killing impact, evoking great fear. That's the awesome mission that these seven angels have, the completion of God's wrath on rebellious man. We find something else important confirmed about these plagues, verse 1 continues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. The seven plagues, that's another way of describing the seven bold judgments, same thing. And they're the last of the plagues, the worst of the plagues. Because in them, the wrath of God will be completed. And that term last is significant because it informs us about something. If it's the last, it's kind of like what I said about the word another, that tells you there's others. Well, if it's the last, that means there were others. There were other plagues before them, plagues of wrath, the trumpet judgments, the seal judgments that come before all of this where we are now in the tribulation, they're also plagues because they were also expressing the wrath of God. This is not the only section talking about God's wrath. All of this has been God's wrath poured out on the world. I make that point because there are those who say that only now in Revelation are we finally coming to God's wrath. No, God's wrath extends throughout the seven-year tribulation period. In fact, all those other seals and the first six tru- trumpet judgments—they're called plagues. Back in chapter nine, verse twenty, so they were plagues too. But again, these seven bowl plagues have the distinctions of being the distinction of being the last one. What was the purpose then of all those others? Well, they were severe. These are more severe. Those were warnings, it, repeated warnings. Warning people of the severity of God's wrath as it's coming. But these are the climax of all of them. Again, some try to find fulfillment of these plagues in 70 AD when Jerusalem was destroyed. But frankly, you just can't rationalize the wording here to try to soften and mitigate the universa- universality of all of this, the whole earth, and the finality of it as well. That didn't happen in 70 AD. So the word last confirms all that. And the term last confirms something else, that all this is happening chronologically. It's in an order, a sequence. These plagues are the last ones. So the bowls come after the seals and the trumpets in chronological sequence. That's the right way to interpret the book of Tre- Revelation. Revelation. Now, back to this idea of the outpouring of God's judgmental fury, it's been anticipated earlier in Revelation. There's been this buildup just with the language that's been used. Chapter 6, verse 17, I'll just just give you some of these. Chapter 6, verse 17, the great day of wrath. Chapter 11, verse 14, talked about these woes and said there's a third woe. It's the third woe. Chapter eleven, verse eighteen: a time of destruction coming. Chapter fourteen, verse ten: it's the unmixed wine of God's anger in the cup of cup of wrath. Chapter fourteen, verse ten: it's the reaping of the earth with a sickle, a literal harvest of judgment. Chapter fourteen, verses seventeen through twenty: the final trampling of the grapes in the wine press of God's wrath, producing vintage wrath. How picturesque all that is, describing all this and the increase of God's fury. This is the duty of these seven angels to inflict all this on the earth. And notice the conjunction because that gives us the reason for emphasizing the lastness of it because, as I said, the wrath of God, the anger of God is going to be finished then. And that term finished is in a tense that says that's it it's reached its ultimate goal this is the future from a human perspective but it's worded even in the tense of that verb it's worded as if it's already happened it's it is finished in them it is finished why can god word it that way because he's timeless in his perspective, it's already done. Our perspective is future. Well, just a comment, final comment in this first section about the sign of judgment, is just the word wrath here. This is a different word wrath than you find a a lot in the New Testament. Uh, the common word for wrath is, is orge, O-R-G-E, for anger. This is thumos, t-h u M-O-S. Thumos describes Rage, even a passionate outburst of anger. That's what God must express against all rebellion and unforgiven sin. Again, Zephaniah 3 8 says that God says, I'm going to pour out on them my burning anger for all the earth will be devoured by the fire of my zeal. So the wrath of God begun under the seal judgments and then the trumpet judgments, the concluding apex is the seven plagues, the seven bold judgments. That's the sign of judgment. He saw that sign. Here's the second section, the song of praise. The song of praise, verse 2. And I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire. The sea of glass is not a literal sea. It's not a literal body of water or an ocean or something. What John saw was something similar to a platform, a transparent crystal platform before the throne of God. It's shimmering, notice the word, like a crystal sea, like a sunlit sea. Not a literal sea. It's sea-like. So this, it's a sea-like crystal platform. We've actually discussed this before, back in Revelation chapter four, verse six. It was seen by John back in Revelation four six. I'll read it. And before the throne, there was that that scene in heaven. The throne before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. By the way, if you look down at verse 7 in our passage, you'll see that the four living creatures are here in this scene as well. You know what's interesting? Moses and the elders saw something like this all the way back in Exodus chapter 24, verses 9 and 10. Here's what it says. Moses and a couple other guys, Aaron and somebody, uh, and the elders... It says, they saw the God of Israel, went up the mountain, saw the God of Israel, Exodus 24, and under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. That's what John is seeing again. So this future platform, this sea of glass, represents the splendor of God on his throne, It's what sets him apart from all of his creation, including the angels. What a beautiful thing to see, but the beauty of this sea now is mixed with something. Makes it different than the vision back in chapter 4, verse 6. It's mixed with the fire of God's judgment. Now, fire is frequently associated in Scripture with God's judgment. Too many to read, and I'll just read them quickly. Numbers 11, verse 1. The people were grumbling. Remember that? Numbers 11. God's anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed them, some of them on the outskirts of the camp. The lesson? Don't grumble. Isaiah 66, verse 15. The Lord will come in fire to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. New Testament, it's not just Old Testament. New Testament, 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7 and 8. The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 10 verse 27, those who reject God's grace and mercy, here's what it says, face a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Peter even says in 2 Peter 3.7 that the whole earth experiences this. The present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment, destruction of ungodly men. I always tell people we have. You've heard me say this. Some of you have. From large groups come to my house, open house, or care group, or something like that, and we're having meals. And I tell them, you can sit anywhere, sit anywhere in the house. Doesn't matter if you spill some. It doesn't matter why. It's all going to burn up anyway. Okay? See, it's biblical. Just think about the mission given to the seven angels. I mean, this fits with that. They're going to bring the fire. Fire of judgment on the earth. John saw that, but he also saw something else. He saw some people. Verse 2 and those who had been victorious, these victorious ones, he sees them there. They're believers, came to Christ during all of this, the tribulation, and martyred during the tribulation period. I'll read for you again a couple of things back in Revelation. Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 and 11, just to review that, Revelation 6, 9 through 11, when the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they were crying out with a loud voice, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? That's chapter 6, Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. After these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Revelation 12 verse 11, and they, these people, here's a comment about them, they overcame him, the evil one, because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony and they did not love their life even when faced with death. One more, Revelation 14, Kevin read this, verse 1 and verse 4. The Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 having his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads. Verse 4, these are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. Again, here's a group that represents those who have Live during the tribulation, those who've come to be redeemed. Lose their lives. Why? Due to all the wrath God being pouring out on the earth? No. That's not the purpose of the wrath. It was due to their testimony, their love for Christ, love for the truth. And because of their enduring faith, they're called the victorious ones here. And we'll see in a moment that they form this mass choir That's why I called the sermon tonight. I'm calling it the Overcomers Choir. The Mass Choir of Overcomers. They've had victory over something. In fact, you only see it in the the English one time. And I don't know why they make that. Sometimes they just smooth things out in English. But in the Greek, the word over occurs three times. To point out the three different obstacles that they've had victory over. Over. In the English, it just says over one time. But they've had victory over the beast, over the image, and victory over the number of his name, it says. That goes back to chapter 13. When Danny taught on that, the counterfeit Christ, the Antichrist, it says of the beast, which is the Antichrist in Romans uh, Revelation 13, 7, it was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him to go about trying to deceive them. His miracles and whatever. But in verses 11 and 18 of chapter 13, it mentions these three obstacles, specifically. These are the elements of the deception that the Antichrist is going to bring upon the world. There's going to be a demand to worship the beast. There's going to be an image of him that's made. Some form, whether it's electronic or whatever. And a mark that people are going to be commanded to take on them. Now, here in our verse, the phrase, the number of his name, replaces that, that mark idea. This mark, or the number of his name, is going to be required for buying and selling. If you don't have it, you can't buy and sell. Also, those without the mark are going to face execution. Antichrist is indeed going to be marginally successful if you're talking about his ability to force this upon the world and to deceive most of the world, but the tribulation saints will not bow to his ways. They will be victorious over him in this sense. They will prevail under all that pressure. The world will capitulate, but the saints won't. That's who makes up this great choir, the saints who refused all this, who will refuse it, and they'll be persecuted and martyred. So really the important thing is how these singers gain this victory. They're going to gain it not through forming a a militia. It's not going to be through military force. It's not going to be through politics and political wrangling. They will be victorious over Antichrist because of their faith, their undying faith in Christ. They will not capitulate on that. I read all those verses, Revelation 6, Revelation 12, Revelation 14, referring back to this group of people. Let me just read a little bit more from those. It talks about their victory. Revelation 6 verse 9 those who had been slain because of the word of God, because of their testimony. That's why they're slain. Revelation 12, 11, They overcame him because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony. They did not love their life even when faced with death. Romans 14, verse 4. These are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes no matter what. Now later, we haven't got to this obviously, Revelation 20 is going to t- tell you their reward. Verses 4 through 6, they're going to be resurrected and rewarded. Here's Revelation 20, verse 4. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, They had not received the mark, the number of his name, in other words, on their forehead or on their hand, and they came to life. They were resurrected and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. That's the millennial kingdom. They'll reign with Christ as part of their reward. Back to our text, John sees them, and it says in verse 2, standing on the sea of glass, the platform. They're pictured standing on that solid pavement that comprises the approach to the throne. So again, just to summarize this, these believers pictured here will have undergone terrors, the terrors of the tribulation. Many will have suffered painful, violent deaths as martyrs, yet despite All of that, despite having endured the most intense persecution the world will ever know, their faith, given to them by God, will endure. They will therefore triumph over the whole enterprise of Satan, the beast, the false prophet, everything, and eventually they're going to stand triumphantly before the throne of God, watching as God, using the full judgment, takes vengeance on their persecutors. This is what true victory is, by the way. True victory is not political victory. True victory is not military victory. True victory is not even avoiding suffering. True victory for all of us is enduring in our faith in the Lord no matter what. That's the victory. Again, back to our text, the tribulation saints that he sees, they're also holding something. Verse 2 says, holding harps. Now, harps are frequently found in the Old Testament associated with praise. A lot of verses about that. 1 Chronicle 13, David and all of Israel were celebrating before God. It says, with all their might, with lyres and harps and tambourines and cymbals and trumpets and banjos and ukuleles and violins. It doesn't say that, but, you know, whatever they had, including harps. Psalm 144, verse 9, I'll sing a new song to you, O God, upon a harp of ten strings. So harps have always been associated with praise. It's, that's even true of Revelation. Back in Revelation chapter 5, verse 8, the 24 elders who fell down before the Lamb to worship Him, crying out, worthy of the Lamb, you know, each, one, each of them, it says in Revelation 5, 8, we're holding a harp. So here in Revelation 15, in this vision, these martyrs, are going to use the harps as accompaniment in this massive overcomer choir and they're going to sing in celebration of this momentous occasion that has arrived. Their prayers for God to take vengeance on their persecutors are about to be answered. Now, what are they going to sing? Well, we're going to see it's actually a medley. Okay, They sing a medley of two songs. First song... It was a big hit back in the day called The Song of Moses. It was on the radio and everything. Even better was The Song of the Lamb. That was one of my favorites. No, The Song of Moses and The Song of the Lamb is what our text calls it. And together, this medley forms an anthem of praise to God. It's because of his character. They're two separate songs, and we know that by the language. It's not the same song that's called the Song of Moses, or you could call it the Song of the Lamb. Some have tried to say that, but the grammar won't allow it. If that were true, the Greek would say the Song of Moses and of the Lamb, but it actually has the word the and song twice, so that separates them. Dr. Thomas, one of my professors in seminary, says this about this, about the two songs. He says the notes of the two songs are different, but the two songs are in harmony with one another because of their themes. So these singers are going to proclaim God's holy, righteous character. Why that? Because it's his holy, righteous character that demands the judgment. So let's examine the medley, verse 3. And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God. Now Moses is connected to more than one song in the Old Testament. For example, in Numbers chapter 11, the Israelites sang a song of praise when the Lord gave them water in the wilderness. That was a great song. It didn't rise up as high on the charts, though, as as the Song of Moses. There's another one in Deuteronomy 31 and 32. Moses taught the children of Israel, actually, to sing a song of remembrance. This this (laughs) This was his swan song because he taught them to sing this right before he died. But the Song of Moses, mentioned in Revelation 15, comes from the time of the Exodus. So he's called the bondservant of God. Why? Why was he a slave of God? What did God use him for? We know the story. God used Moses to lead his people out of Israel, out of their captivity in Egypt. And we're very familiar with that account, of course, of God delivering them from Pharaoh's army by parting the Red Sea and then allowing the Israelites to cross safely to the other side and then causing the water to drown all the Egyptian army. Once they were on the other side, the Israelites, Exodus chapter 15, sang a song of praise to God, praising him for deliverance. It's in Exodus 15, verses 1 through 18. That song of Moses was a song of victory, a song of deliverance for the righteous. At the same time, it was also a song that mentioned judgment and wrath on God's enemies. They sang about it, celebrated it. So likewise, the tribulation saints in Revelation 15 are going to echo the same song of deliverance. Some of the words might be different. And now it's not over the Egyptians, it's the song of deliverance and victory over the beast and his image and the mark, the number of his name. In addition to singing that, the song of Moses with new meaning, new application, the redeemed saints are going to go right into another song called the song of the Lamb. This song celebrates triumph, ultimate victory, Over sin, over the forces of Satan, that's all based upon Christ's sacrifice on the cross. It's the song of the Lamb. It doesn't mean the Lamb literally, that Christ literally composed the song. Moses did. But it's the song for which the Lamb is responsible. In other words, he composed it, just not in words verbally, he composed it in his actions. His actions of judgment and deliverance. So, in that sense, he's responsible for the overcomer's ability to even sing it. Now, this song, they they sang some snippets of it back in Revelation chapter five, verses eight through nine. Verse. 12 through 13, I'll read some of that again, Revelation 5. The four living creatures and the 24 elders, verse 9, sang a new song saying, Worthy are you, singing that to the Lamb, worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Verse 12, they were saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain, verse 13, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. They're singing all that. It's a massive choir. Two distinct songs, yet both rejoicing in the same theme. God's faithfulness, his deliverance of his people, but judgment on his enemies. I thought the commentator John Phillips does a good comparison and contrasting of the two songs. Just listen to this. It's a whole paragraph. The song of Moses was sung at the Red Sea. The song of the Lamb was sung at the Crystal Sea. The song of Moses was a song of triumph over Egypt. The song of the Lamb is a song of triumph over Babylon. The song of Moses told how God brought his people out. The song of the Lamb tells how God brings his people in to know him. The song of Moses was the first song in Scripture. The song of the Lamb is the last. The song of Moses commemorated the execution of the foe, the expectation of the saints, and the exaltation of the Lord. The song of the Lamb deals with the same three themes. Now, here in Revelation 15, John only gives us some of the lyrics of that second psalm, verses 3 and 4. And though the words of the song recorded here don't exactly match Revelation 5, the themes, many of the key terms and concepts are very, very similar. Let's look at the lyrics, verse 3. Here's what they were singing, saying, Great and marvelous are your works. There are psalms that give us those words. Psalm 11, verse two, 111 verse 2, great are your works, O Lord. Psalm 139 verse 14, wonderful or marvelous are your works. So just as the Lord's works were great and marvelous in judging the Egyptians at the Red Sea, they also will be great and will cause marveling and astonishment in punishing the world through those last plagues. And they sing out, verse three: 3, O Lord God, the Almighty. That's a title. It's the very title that God used to reveal himself to Abraham when he crashed into Abraham's life. Genesis 17, verse 1. The Lord Yahweh appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. It's a title that points to God's omnipotence, his all-powerfulness. It's, it's the right title, it's the appropriate title in this context that's speaking about the works of judgment that lead to ultimate victory. So they sing about it. It appears, that title, several times in Revelation. Revelation 1 verse 8, I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty One. Revelation four eight the four living creatures, day and night, do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Revelation 11.17, we give you thanks, O Lord God the Almighty. Revelation 16.7, O Lord God the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. Revelation 19.6, we haven't gotten to that one yet. Hallelujah, for the Lord our God the Almighty reigns. It's a great title for God. They sing it. It's part of their song. Verse 3, they sing this, righteous and true are your ways. God's ways are right. They're just. That's a theme found throughout Scripture. Deuteronomy 4.37, all his works are true and his ways are just. Always. Deuteronomy 32, verse 4, all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness who is without injustice. Hosea 14.9, the ways of the Lord are right or just. Now, in this context, when they're singing that, it's about the judgment. His ways of judgment are just. It's just that he pours out all this wrath on the earth. Whether you can connect the dots in your own mind of definition of fairness or not, Scripture says he's just, and these people knew it, and they sang it. They're going to sing about it. Righteous. Is another way of talking about the correctness of God as a judge. He's righteous and he's true. He keeps his promises, including the promises of judgment. Judgment against an unrepentant world, he promises that in Scripture. And they seeing that he's the king of the nations. I need to comment briefly on a textual issue here. There is one translation that says king of the saints. That's not a good translation. The Texas Receptus there, reading of saints, has very, very weak support from any Greek witnesses. It's not king of the saints, it's king of the nations. That's the context as well in the verse. It's talking about the nations here. It's a title that asserts God's rulership over all the people of the earth, all the nations. Again, I'm just reading a lot of verses to you. Psalm 22, verse, you're going to be tested on all these, so I hope you're writing them down. Psalm 22, verse 28, he rules over the nations. Psalm 47, 7, and 8, our God is the king of all the earth. God reigns over the nations. Psalm 82, verse 8, arise, O God, judge of the earth, for it is you who possesses all the nations. They're all his. In Jeremiah 10, verse 7, he is called there the king of the nations. Do you know Revelation even started that way? Revelation 1 verse 5, Jesus Christ is the ruler of the kings of the earth. What a great song. The song continues in verse 4 by proclaiming the inevitability that all at some point, at the end of all the judgment, the inevitability of people fearing God and giving him the glory he deserves. Verse 4. It's a rhetorical question in two parts, but it's a rhetorical question. It implies the answer, no one. Here's the question, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? Sort of a double negative in the answer. The answer is no one will not fear the Lord. In other words, eventually, after the last plagues are over, everyone left will willingly reverence and glorify him. This comes from Jeremiah 7. Jeremiah 10, verse 7, I just read it. it, says he's the king of the nations. Here's the question, Jeremiah 10, 7, who would not fear you, O king of the nations? Indeed, it is your due. Of course they're going to do this, it's your due, Jeremiah 10, 7. Now, what's interesting about this, back in chapter 13, the counterfeit Christ that Danny preached about, In verse 4, there's a similar question about him that the world poses. The question resembles the one in 13.4 that brings out how deceived the people are over the counterfeit Christ, the Antichrist. He's viewed this way. He's viewed as incomparable. And thus, he's the rival object of worship that the majority in their delusion are going to choose to worship prior to the Lord's ultimate conquest. Here it is, Revelation 13 4. And they worship the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? And who's able to wage war with him? Same kind of idea. So our verse is pointing to a time when, after the purging of the earth through the plagues takes place, the survivors will all respond positively to God. More specifically, we know what's coming in Revelation in the millennial kingdom. People from all nations will enter that kingdom. And they'll be worshiping God at the beginning, glorifying him, just as the Old Testament even anticipated. Listen to the prophecy of this, Psalm 86, verse 9. All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and they will glorify your name. Notice our text in that verse I just read says they're going to glorify the name of the God, worshiping the name of God. It doesn't mean a particular name that he has, a title. Name in Scripture many times just means the completeness of who he is. The total revelation of who he is. To glorify his name is to praise him for all that he is, everything that he's accomplished, all that he will accomplish. And they're going to do this because it says, or for, verse 4, you alone are holy. Now, this is not the usual word for holiness in the scripture. Now, in Hebrew, there's a word for holy. Holy. There's lots of verses that say that, you know, 1 Samuel 2, verse 2, there's no one holy like the Lord. Psalm 111, verse 9, holy and awesome is his name. My favorite, Isaiah 6, 3, the the vision of Isaiah, holy, 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 that angels were proclaiming as the Lord of hosts, thrice holy. In the New Testament, he said to be holy, but it's usually a different word. This is a word here that means not his inherent sinlessness. It's a word that basically means sacredness. It means that God's sacred character is one reason for this universal of worship of him once the earth is purged. It's his unapproachable majesty that brings this out. And the word alone, monos, he's the only one. It confirms the uniqueness of his sacredness. And another reason for universal recognition of God comes in the next little clause, for all the nations will come and worship before you. They will. It was prophesied. In the Old Testament, Psalms, the prophets, God tells the Son, the Father tells the Son in Psalm 2 verse 8, I will give you the nations as your inheritance, as your possession. Psalm 86 verse 9, all nations whom you have made will come and worship before you. Then there's another four clause there in verse 4. For your righteous acts have been revealed. Revealed how? In judgment. The thing that brings him universal worship from the nations is going to be this activity of purging the earth. Isn't it interesting these, these... Redeemed ones are not like a lot of, not the songs we sing here, but there's so many worship songs that are out there that are about self. It's, it's about me and my feelings and my experience. and The song of these redeemed saints is not going to be about themselves. It's not going to be about their own victory, even though they're called the victorious ones. They're just going to extol God's character as the omnipotent, immutable, sovereign, perfect, righteous creator and judge. He's all that. And because he's all that, he must purge the earth. If he ignored their sin, he would not be these things. You know, in Philippians 2, those familiar words at the end of Philippians 2, 10 and 11, it says that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven, on earth, under the earth, every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. That ties into this. It's going to happen. As the millennium progresses over a thousand years, this worship is going to wane. It's going to be marred. People will be born in the millennium. And many will rebel. And by the end of that period, Revelation 20, verse 8, there'll be a revolt, final revolt, And then the ultimate realization of all this will be our eternal state then forever that follows that. So that's the second section here. The sign of judgment, the song of praise. I forgot what I called it actually. Well, that was a long, many pages back. The song of praise, yes. Here's the third section. The sending of the angels. Now it's time. I mean, they've been there. But now this part of the vision, and it's even a new vision, it says in verse 5. In this new vision, I know what you're thinking. It took him that long to go through the first four verses. So how is he going to finish this up? You're going to see. I'll go faster now. It's a new vision, and the angels are now given... The tools, the weapons, the instruments of execution. Verse 5, after these things, I looked in the temple, of the tabernacle of testimony, and heaven was opened. He had a similar vision to this earlier. He was anticipating what he's seeing now. It's back in Revelation 19, 11, Excuse me, Revelation 11, verse 19, and the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened. That was laying the groundwork for what he sees now. The term temple means where God is. It's the holy of holies, the heavenly sanctuary, the inner sanctuary where God's presence dwells. He's behind all this. This confirms that. It's the heavenly tabernacle. On earth, the tabernacle was actually called sometimes the tabernacle of testimony. As it's here, it's called here the heavenly version in the verse. Why was it called that? You see it in Exodus 38, Numbers 1. Because the most important item in there, the earthly form, was the Ark of the Covenant. And it's sometimes called the Ark of Testimony because it contained the testimony, the tablets with the Ten Commandments on them. So it's called the Tabernacle of Testimony. Well, with that term, the point's still the same. Heaven where God is, the tabernacle of testimony, the tabernacle of truth, God's presence. It's open now to reveal this severe earthly judgment, the most severe ever on lost sinners. And as John continued watching, here's what he saw, verse 6, and the seven angels now who had the seven plagues came out of the temple. Here they come. I can almost vision them marching out with their weapons, the seven bulls the seven plagues, to begin their mission, pouring out all these deadly judgments on the world. Verse 6 says they're clothed in linen, clean and bright, clothing, raiment that represents their holiness and their purity. They had around their chest, you know, uh, the way a sash would be worn, uh, golden sashes that just uh, befits, really, this glorious, holy, majestic being all seven of them. So after they solemnly proceed from the inner sanctuary of God's heavenly temple, these angels, John's watching all this, they receive the means of judgment. Verse 7 says, then one of the four living creatures, here's where they get the weapons, gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God. This This is actually where they get their weapons. So they come out of the Tabernacle, the holy of holies, the heavenly sanctuary, God's presence. Four living creatures, we've seen them before, they're there. These cherubim, they're a, a order of high-ranking angels. And they give to the angels the golden bulls of judgment. Interesting, don't, don't envision this big bull full of judgment. It's actually the word for a saucer. Kind of surprising. A shallow saucer. And there's a reason Scripture wants to present it that way. The imagery is not of a bowl with this stream just sort of being poured out gradually or like a a pitcher. In a shallow saucer, it's the idea of the whole contents of the saucer just being hurled down all at one time. Instant flood of judgment. And then he adds a thought about God's power to do it all, verse 7, who lives forever and ever. I mean, God lives forever and ever, and so he wants a forever and ever where there's not going to be any sin in his holy presence. He must do this. Something else came out of the heavenly temple at this point. Verse 8: And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. In the Old Testament, smoke symbolizes a lot of things: the glory of God, his power, his majesty, but also it symbolizes his presence. Especially in the tabernacle or the temple, there was the the smoke, the cloud, the Shekinah glory representing God's presence. Here, the smoke is representing God's presence, but in the form of his wrath, his judgment. Verse 8 says, and no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. I mean, the smoke is there representing the presence of God in his judgment, and it's going to remain that way in the heavenly temple until it's all done. And when the earth is purged, cleansed, it is then prepared for the king and his kingdom. So that's the scene that establishes the background for chapter 16, which gives us the final definitive judgment dumped out. John MacArthur puts it this way, once the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus because of what he did for sinners, in the future, wrath will be poured out on sinners Because of what they did to Jesus. For now, it is true that God is so patient with sinners. He's merciful in the sense that He doesn't strike them down immediately when they curse Him or rebel against Him or disobey His law or ignore Him or redefine Him when they sin. He's so merciful. But the mercy is continuing to be refused, and mercy refused requires judgment. By the time God pours out the seven bowls of his final wrath on earth, they will have been repeatedly warned, all the judgments that have come before this. They will have been experiencing terrifying judgments. In chapter 6, it even says they acknowledge that it comes from God. They will have heard the hundred and forty four thousand Jewish evangelists. They would have heard the two witnesses. They would have heard testimony by redeemed Gentiles and Jews until they're executed. <laughs> Chapter fourteen. Kevin pointed out that there's even going to be an angel flying in heaven preaching the gospel. Doesn't matter. They're going to keep hardening their hearts. And Proverbs twenty-eight fourteen tells you what happens when you harden your heart. Proverbs twenty-eight fourteen: he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. They're a lot of guilty of that very thing today. Here we are in the age of grace and the gospel is so accessible and people are hardening their hearts, storing up wrath, Don't make that mistake. Hebrews 3, verse 15 says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Because it is an unchangeable law that those who refuse God's love, those who reject his mercy and grace and scorn him, will inevitably face his wrath. If they die in this world, they'll face it in the next. If they're alive during this time they'll face it in its fury. Let's pray. Father, we're so sobered to study something like this, and we acknowledge that it's true because it's your word. Inspired Scripture. And Lord, there's a clarity to it, even though it's written in symbolic language and scenes and visions. The point is clear that you're a holy, righteous, just God, and you hate sin, and rebellion will be punished. Lord, it makes us even more grateful that in all of our weakness, and our sin, and rebellion, and pride, and those of us who know you, we don't claim that we found you. You found us. You came to us and opened our hearts to believe the gospel, maybe as a child, maybe as a teenager, maybe as a young adult, maybe older in life, you get the glory for opening our stubborn hearts, our hardened hearts that we might see and believe. So Lord, we pray for those who may come here Sunday after Sunday or service after service or from time to time and keep hardening their hearts against the truth and refusing to humble themselves to just say, I'm a sinner. I need to be forgiven. Give them new life that they might say that and believe that. And trust in the finished work of Christ that he accomplished in his life and death so they can be saved. Father, again, we thank you for Christ, our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen.